Hi, I'm Hilary Hess. You're listening to A Helping of Happiness. This podcast is for busy moms like me who have a full life and are constantly finding themselves in a balancing act. I definitely do not have it all together, but I hope that sharing the things that I have learned as a mom of seven kids and the things that you will hear from the guests that I have on will be things that will really inspire and help us all to be a little bit better and give us all some fresh ideas and have a little bit of fun while we're at it. You guys are going to be so excited when you hear who is on here today. We have parent and family relationship educator, Georgia Anderson. I cannot wait for you to meet Georgia. She is so awesome. She's a certified active parenting instructor, Gottman trained educator, and trainer for the protective factors for strengthening families. She has been facilitating parenting and family relations classes for over 25 years years. She's so amazing. She also not only does all that, but she works part-time as a massage therapist and a family educator, volunteers as a birth doula, and she loves humanitarian work. And we're going to talk about that a little bit in our podcast. She's also an avid hiker, skier, and adventurer. And I am super excited about Georgia personally, because she is my mom's cousin. Isn't that just so fun? So every time I hear Georgia, when I'm watching her different podcasts that she's been on or or watching different classes that she's giving, webinars, then I feel like I'm talking to my mom and it's been so awesome. So hey, Georgia. Hi. So nice to meet up with you, even online, Hillary. I know. Well, I'm so excited to have you chat with us because it's the month of love with February here. And we're talking about, I feel like everybody's got all this stuff about relationships. I'd love to have you talk a little bit before we start on that, just about yourself and your background, just really quickly. Yeah. I'm the mother of four married children and three married stepchildren. So seven married children. And we have 11 grandchildren. I am in a blended family, which gives a lot. I've learned so much about love from that. And that's a whole different podcast. But um, (laughs) (laughs) so I I totally have, you know, was a full-time mom. And now I'm a retired mom and loved that job and was so challenged by that job that I was teaching parenting classes as a volunteer a lot of years. And then when my children all left, I decided to make a little business out of it. So uh, then came the Gottman marriage classes. And now I just have a whole plethora of relationship classes I teach. And it's very fulfilling and challenging. And I love it. Awesome. So much fun. Okay, so let's dig right into this. We're going to talk about cherishing your partner a bit and your the foundation of a lot of the things you teach are about the Gottman principles. So I'm yeah. going to just kind of turn this over to you and just give it to us here. Okay. All right. Well, first I think it's really important to know that the, the research from the Gottman Institute didn't just come from some ideas that he had. He is what we call the Einstein of love <laughs> because he wanted to scientifically study relationships. And before John Gottman came along, there was about a 9% accuracy rate in, in predicting human behavior. So if someone was going to try to predict what I, you or I were going to do five years or two years down the road or what our life would be like, they had about 9% accuracy probability. 
And he thought he could do better than that with a couple, like with a relationship. And he started to make predictions based on his research about what couples would last, what, you know, who would be happy in their relationships and who would be divorced, for instance. And he thought, you know, all of his colleagues were like, you can't predict human behavior. You'll never get a grant to do that. And he got a grant. And then he built what we call the Love Lab. He invited people to come up and stay overnight at the University of Washington in a nice romantic setting with the lake in front of the windows. And they could just hang out in the Love Lab and he would observe them. When I think of a love lab, I think of them like when I would observe preschool when I was in college and you're like behind the window and they're in the class. So that makes it better to think of it being a romantic situation and not just. Well, yeah, here's the rub rub on that. They had to have a halter monitor strapped to their chest to measure their heart rate. (laughs) And they had three cameras bolted to the walls in their room. And they had to have their blood and urine samples taken every hour or so (laughs) (laughs) to measure their endocrines, you know, so he could see what was actually happening in the individuals. But what happened was he said they were pretty, you know, self-conscious for the first hour or two. And then they just started kind of being themselves and talking about their life. And of course, they didn't record them in the bedroom or the bathroom, but they were just trying to get a sense of their everyday interactions to kind of see what made love last. And then they followed these couples down through four decades. Wow. So they continue to study couples today, all kinds of couples, and see what happens, for instance, when a baby's born into the family, um, how that affects the relationship. And they follow them for decades. And they've, out of this research, based on their blood samples, their urine samples, their facial expressions, their words, thousands and thousands of pieces of data were put together. And he's scientifically come up with these seven principles that make love last. So it's not just an idea. It's not just a theory. It's actual hard science. And that's why they call him the Einstein of love. Wow. That's incredible. Well, that gives you a little background. We're not just talking, you know, ethereal ideas like we keep learning right right i had a lot of those (laughs) theories in my human development classes right right this is hard science and the joy the beauty of it is that it's so simple it's so simple and so doable it doesn't mean it's easy but it's very simple and doable so um what he came up with was what he calls the sound relationship house and that is just because he once he got it all done he thought okay what kind of like the three little pigs, you know, they had a house of straw and a house of twigs and a house of bricks. And he said, you know, how do you build a house of bricks for your relationship? When I teach my classes, I kind of think of your relationship as a living thing. It's like not you and it's not me. It's what goes on between us. Mm -hmm. And it's just like this growing living thing that is changed by the environment, like a plant is Mm -hmm. and by what it's fed and watered and it doesn't take a ton of effort but if you give it not enough water or the wrong kind of food you can damage it and you got to go in and repair it and fix it so I think about a lot of like a plant and that's one of the reasons even my logo for my company is a tree it's like this your relationships are growing living things that you have to nourish a little bit Um, so he built this what he calls the sound relationship house and I don't know that we'll have time to talk about every principle today, but really the foundation of the house is what we can talk about maybe the most. 
and it's actually the most fun thing to do and the most Valentine oriented. So we're going to start <laughs> right at the bottom of the house. And the bottom of the house is what he calls building love maps. Perfect for Valentine's, right? Perfect. <laughs> and I love maps, maps and lists and charts. So this is like right up my alley. Oh, good. <laughs> well, I think there's a reason we love maps and lists and charts. I mean, it's because they give us purpose, right? They give us a reason to go where we want to go. And um, so he calls a love map something that is like, just like a, a physical map you hold in your hands, a love map is cognitive space that you actually open up in your brain for information about your partner or your loved one. This could be a child, it could be a friend, but for our purposes today, let's say it's about your spouse. So um, you're gonna actually open up cognitive space in your brain, use some of those neurons and some of that cell space in your brain to get information about this person that you want to store. This is the basic, most important foundation of a good sound relationship house. So how do you go about doing that? You know, you, you start to get curious is basically what it's about. You put on your reporter hat. I think so often in our relationships, we get to where we're living parallel lives. We get so busy with our children, our jobs, our commitments outside our, our home. And we kind of think, well, that person, you know, we made a deal, we got married, we're committed to each other, but we're not really, there's nothing growing in that relationship. It's just stable kind of side by side. And what can happen is the wolf comes and howls at the door. And if that relationship or that plant is not well fed and fertilized and watered, it can wither it can get blown right off the planet, right? And it can do that just by the everyday wear and tear of family life as well, if it's not nurtured. So what a love map does is kind of build a space in your life that's just for your loved one. And it continues to get um, nourished and fed. So what you're basically wanting to do, as I said, is be curious about that person. So. Uh, there's actually a freebie involved in this. There's a free Gottman card deck app on the app store where they get you started with some love map questions. And there's all these different card decks. There's, you know, just your basic love maps and there's open-ended questions. And then it gets into your sex life and really steamy sex life if you want. I mean, you can pick how far <laughs> you want to go with this. But um, I suggest people always start with the basic love map questions, which are really simple. But what's the last time you asked your spouse or loved one what their favorite color was or what their favorite movie of the year was or what their favorite restaurant was this year or whatever? That seems like really elementary, but that's really the foundation for so much. It gives you a map of the future. If I know my husband's favorite color, just that simple bit of knowledge. When I go out to buy him a shirt, what am I gonna look for? Exactly, yes. So it's really simple, basic information, but sometimes we just don't pay attention and we don't use it in an effective way. You know, down to the very, a simple act as if we're playing Monopoly together, I wanna hand him the yellow car because he loves yellow. Right, and, yeah, and that's know, the little just, things that matter, yeah. True. I mean, one of the big themes of the Gottman Seven Principles is small things often. It's not the trip to Hawaii. It's you handing him the yellow game piece over and over again. Yeah. 
those, those simple things, those are the things that research tells us make the difference. So that's the first one, a love map. So you're just basically, it's, it's making cognitive space in your brain and continuing to fill it with information about your loved one. Love that. Okay. So now you're on pins and needles. Tell me number two. Okay. <laughs> number two <laughs> is to share fondness and admiration. And that kind of naturally follows having that the map information, right? So now that you have information about your partner, how can you show appreciation for them? And knowing things they care about helps you do that more, but you can do it, you know, you can do it regardless of that. So how easy is it to forget on a regular basis to thank our partner for the things that they do that make our life better? Yeah, so That's easy. a simple yeah. thing, but we forget, right? Yeah. I know I forget. I just have an expectation that I measure up and that he measures up and we just go on doing our jobs and I don't stop and thank him for mm -hmm. taking the garbage out, for going to work every day, for noticing one of the kids when they're sad or doing something special for my parents or anything. It, you know, I just expect it instead of saying something about it. So just a simple form of appreciation. Thank you for, thank you for, or I appreciate this, or I appreciate that is a huge piece of the foundation of your house. Well, and I think of it even towards me when I'm thanked or appreciated by my husband or my kids, it turns everything around. Like all of a sudden I've gone from feeling like I'm just dragging through life to, Oh, I'm feeling pretty good about what I'm doing and who I am. You know, it's Isn't that amazing. It goes a long way. I love that one. It's, it's truly amazing. When we do these um, exercises in our workshops and we come to this section and the, they do an appreciation exercise, a really simple back and forth. You can literally feel the energy in the room change. You can, it, it becomes lighter and brighter. And there's just this happiness, this yellow feeling in the room, you know, this white light yellow feeling in the room that's just so contagious and you want to be in that space. Yeah. So I just, you know, that's been, that one is just a given and positive psychology has done tons of research about gratitude and how much difference it makes, not only in the person who's hearing it, but the person who's giving it. Right. Especially when you're looking for those good things that I'm sure changes your entire focus. If you would mm -hmm. have negative thoughts instead of the positive, that's, yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Very, again, a very simple principle is just one that's easy to not to let it slip. So, okay, the, we're ready to go up to the next level? Yes, let's do it. Okay, now okay. We've, we've, we've mapped it. We're feeling like we're really thankful. Now what's next? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the next one is turning toward instead of away. And sometimes we call this bids for connection. So there's a wonderful story that um, John Gottman tells about how he loves to read mystery novels. And one night he was finishing a novel. He was about to find out who the killer was. He's laying on his bed or sitting in his room. And he, he had to go get a drink, but he couldn't wait to get back and figure out who the killer was in the mystery novel. <laughs> and he walked toward the kitchen and walked by the bathroom and noticed his wife, Julie, standing at the mirror with a really sad look on her face. He calls this a sliding door moment. I guess there's a famous movie called Sliding Doors, which I've never oh, seen. Oh, yes, yeah. I have, but I think it was like 20 years ago. It was a long yeah, time ago. Yeah, it's an old movie. Yeah. <laughs> okay, which he said, 20 this years ago just seems like yesterday, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, here was my sliding door moment. I could 
Pretend I didn't see that. I could walk toward the kitchen and get my drink. Or I could choose to take that opportunity, that bid. What it was was a bid. He saw this smiling or this sad look on his face. It's an opportunity for him to connect with her. Hmm. And he decided to take the bid. He thought he had to work through this in his mind in just a split second. My book will still be there tomorrow. This moment with my wife will not be there tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to put the book aside in my brain and take this moment to connect with my wife, which is turning toward a bid for connection. Instead of ignoring it, turning away, or even turning against like, oh, you're sad again. You know, I'm trying to finish my book and here you are. You know, that would be a, a turning against a bid. And uh, turning away from a bid would just be walking down the, to the, toward the kitchen and pretending you didn't see it. And turning toward the bid would be doing what he chose to do, which was go in and put his hands on her shoulders and brush her hair and say, hey, baby, what's wrong? How can I help you? So turning toward bids, and that can be anything as simple as look at that gorgeous sunset and saying, wow, that's so beautiful, to noticing when your partner's overwhelmed and stepping in to help them without being asked, or even, you know, even letting them ask you and answering, whatever that is, but turning toward a bid for connection, whether it's verbal or nonverbal. So becoming a, a more of a master at noticing when your partner needs a connection of some kind. Well, and I think of, I've just, I've had all these thoughts coming through my mind, different things when you're saying this. I just keep thinking how if I'm on my phone, which I often am trying to get better at putting that down, I could be missing yeah. a lot of those cues, you know, if I'm sure. not paying attention. That oh, no question about it. In fact, um, digital distractions is one of the number one, is that the Gottman Institute has added that as one of the new um top 10 problems in marriages because wow. people are tuned out. They don't, they can't connect when their eyes aren't up and they're not seeing what's going on. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So, okay. So we have turning toward each other. That's kind of the next step. Then the next step on the house is called the positive perspective. And that one's kind of a freebie because if you're really good at the ones underneath at building love maps, working on your fondness and admiration, and then turning toward bids, what naturally happens is that you tend to feel more positive about your relationship. But one of the exercises we do in, in working toward that, because some, one of the other things the research showed was that if you have positive memories about your relationship and about how you fell in love, there's a high probability that you will have a happy future. So couples who are in trouble will often remember negative things about their pairing up. They'll say, oh, you know, they were my last shot. Or I, you know, <laughs> they'll say something negative about how they met mm -hmm. um, and kind of slide a little negativity in there where couples who remember with fondness the way they met have a, more of a tendency to have a happy future. So we do an exercise where we write the history and philosophy of your marriage and just spend a little time writing down how you met, what made you fall in love with each other, and kind of what the philosophy of your couplehood has been like. Mm -hmm. And that tends to create a positive perspective because you're remembering the good together. Yeah. Another exercise we do there in that, um, and I'm sending this all out to my email listeners, I'm going to send out a format for a, perf the, 
a really wonderful way to write a love note, a love note for Valentine's. Oh, neat. And this is from our workshop and it has to do with the positive perspective, but I'll give you, in case you miss my email and you're not on there, I'm going to give it to you right here. So what we do is we think of three character traits about our partner. So these are different than appreciations. Okay. These are actual qualities about our partner that we cherish. And, you know, you can think back to what made you fall in love with them. What, what was something about their character that you really cherish and that made you so attracted to them? And you write those three words down. Then you think of a situation, and recent ones are really even more powerful than old ones, but both are good. Think of a situation where they demonstrated that character trait. So you're going to get very specific about that character trait and write it down in a sentence. So you have a trait and a sentence, a character, you know, a situation where they demonstrated it. Then all you have to do is write, dear honey bunch or whatever, you know, uh, for Valentine's day, I just wanted you to know um, some of the things that really stand out about you to me, things that I really cherish and adore. You write your three things and you write love, you know, Georgia, whatever. You have the most beautiful Valentine's love note you could ever. I mean, don't you cherish the letters people oh, have given me yes, like that? I do. And I keep thinking this would be so good to write to my kids as well. Oh, yeah. I the mean, this would be yeah. something, you know, not just thanks for being sweet to your brother. You know, this is really more just so individualized. I love that aspect. Right. Of and, and you can still write about being sweet to your brother, but you can be specific about a situation, which means 10 times more than a generality and name the trait that you see in them. It just gives it deeper meaning. So it's just a stronger connection. Oh, I love that. I'm definitely doing this. Oh, okay. Keep going. Hey, so, feed me. Hey, feed so, me. <laughs> <laughs> so we're into the middle of the house now things this is all the foundation and uh, you, as you and i know the foundation of a house is by far the most important part yeah because if you don't have a good foundation the rest of it's really tough um yeah. storms can come and knock it down and whatever so that foundation is really what helps to build trust and commitment and um i kind of think of those as the sidewalls of the house trust and commitment so both people need to have a stake in this at some point yeah. you know um but even one person working on these things can really make a huge difference even if the other person isn't bought in totally because when we are when we feel cherished we tend to want to reciprocate it may take some time there may be old habits there may be things you know walls that need to break down but if one person consistently cherishes the other person the chances of that relationship growing and flourishing are phenomenal really so here we are, we're kind of in the middle of the house and now we're going to start dealing with conflict <laughs> because inevitably there's going to be conflict, right? Always uh, seems to be. I love that I can apply this to not only to my marriage, but to all my family relationships. It's true. It's this awesome. applies to work, work relationships, kids relationships, anybody really benefits from this research. Okay. So, so here we are, we're in conflict. Okay. Well, the most one of the very most valuable things that John Gottman's research proved and taught us and that I wish I could shout from the rooftops is that conflict a is inevitable and that conflict problems in your marriage 
statistically, 69% of them are going to be unsolvable. Wow, that's a pretty high amount of conflicts. Wow. That's a, yeah. And I think when we start beating our heads against the wall, thinking there's something wrong with us because we're just not the same, we don't see eye to eye on this, and we start beating ourselves against the wall and we start building up our fortresses of defensiveness and reasons why we are right, that's where marriages break down in a big way. And when the research came out that 69% are unsolvable, and even if you got divorced and married someone else, they still have 69% of their problems that are unsolvable. Now, it doesn't mean that every marriage is salvageable. It doesn't mean that every couple is perfectly synchronized, and some marriages just aren't going to work out. But the fact that you know that on average, 69% are unsolvable is really helpful. It's really comforting to me yeah. to know that you're not, there's no perfect couple. It doesn't exist. The couples that find happiness are those that realize that they're different people. The problem comes and where things really go downhill are when things get gridlocked, meaning people get further and further entrenched in their own side and they, they just see the other person as a villain. Mm-hmm. And they're they're just like two lockhorn rams, you know, pushing it against each other, whether it's over money or kids or sex or in-laws or, you know, all those top reasons that people have um, problems. So what he learned by following these couples, and again, this was not his thoughts, it was just what he learned from the research, was that a couple of things were happening in the couples who were able to manage their conflict. So He never talks about solving a problem unless it's a solvable problem. Mm -hmm. And a solvable problem kind of looks like when you talk about it, your heart rate doesn't go up and you don't get all stressed out Mm -hmm. and you don't, your brain doesn't get cloudy. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Like there are certain problems you talk about that get you really stressed out. Oh yeah. Those tend to be your unsolvable problems. But problems that are solvable are usually like, okay, well, what are we doing on for vacation? Or what are we going for dinner? Or what are we, you know, solving some, I mean, any of those things, any money or sex or in-laws, or they can all be solvable as well. It just depends really what's happening inside the two of you. Mm-hmm. If one of you is getting an elevated heart rate and you're getting stress hormones released into your endocrine system, then that tells you it's an unsolvable problem, even if it's only one of you. But if one of you is feeling that sense of flooding, it's an unsolvable problem. Wow. So there's different techniques for solving solvable problems and unsolvable. So solvable is pretty obvious. You, you know, you kind of, well, we, we do what we call compromise ovals. You write your areas of inflexibility in the middle and make them very small. And then you write lots of flexible ideas around the outside. And then you merge your circles together and just, you know, you just problem solve together. Yeah. Yeah. But with an unsolvable problem, the technique is a little bit different. And before we teach how to do that, we usually talk about three important items on the managing conflict thing. So again, we're not using the word solving your problems. We're talking about managing your problems Mm -hmm. in order to keep your relationship strong. First one, the research tells us, is that you need to learn to accept influence from your partner. Now, Interesting thing about this research is that it really cited on the positive side for the women and negative for the men. And this is a generalization, but in general, women accept influence from their partner at a fairly high level. And 
men have a harder time accepting influence from their wives. And this wasn't just husbands and wives. This was little children that were studied playing together. The boys didn't accept influence from girls, but girls didn't accept influence from boys. The exception to that rule is if the girls were a lot bigger and older, then boys would accept influence from them. So it's kind of this evolutionary and now very cultural idea that girls should accept influence from boys, but not the other way around. And what he found in studying these couples that the ones who were successful and the most happy, they accepted influence from each other at a fairly high level. Hmm. And that it can be taught. It's difficult to change culture. It's different, difficult to change the way we've been raised, but it can be taught that we are open to ideas from the opposite sex. So maybe that's why I get along so well with my husband is he just lets me do whatever I want. And <laughs> <laughs> they have a so lot to do If he has an opinion it. about something, I'm like, okay, we better do it your way because you don't usually care about most of my other stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that honestly but can say a lot it makes it really about... easy to live with him because he does have such a high level of acceptance of whatever, you know, he knows it matters a lot more to me, I guess, but yeah. he's really good yeah. at that. And you're telling me that that's that your relationship is really easy and that may have a lot of impact on it. Yeah, I think it does. I've never really thought about it that way, but yeah, he's really easy to live with because of that, because yeah. I'm really bossy. So it's <laughs> he's not really bossy too. Are you a first child? <laughs> Can you tell that I'm a first child raised by two first children? <laughs> that's awesome. That's so interesting. That's really interesting. So it's not, I don't mean to paint the guys as the bad guy. And again, that can change. That can be a variable in different yeah. relationships. Oh, yeah. but as we're talking generalizations here. So now we're going to talk about a problem that the women have. <laughs> this leads to more conflict and gridlock. And that is that the way we dialogue about our problems can have a huge impact on the way they turn out. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of stuff we go through in this and a lot of practicing we do, but I'll just bring up one issue and that's generally tends to be a female issue and that is a harsh startup. So again, about, this is similar to the positive perspective, but, but about when they were researching all these conversations and dialogues and, you know, coding all this information, what they learned was that 94% of the time when a conflict conversation starts harshly, it ends badly. Hmm. So the way we start our conversations about a problem have a huge impact on how that conversation is going to end. And typically women are the ones who bring up the problems. There's a genetic reason for that or an evolutionary kind of reason for that. The same as the men accepting influence. There's a big reason for that. And we don't really have time to go into those, but there's a gen there's this kind of reason that we've evolved to kind of be the way we are. And the female reason is that the females have always kind of been the keeper of the relationships. If you go back to the caveman days, the men were out hunting, the women were nursing the babies. They needed to be sure that man would keep coming back so that they could raise the babies and not go out to some other woman, basically. And they were very, very insistent that the guy keep coming back. Well, what we tend to do is do that in a negative way. We want to keep the relationship close, but the way we start out is by criticizing our spouse. And, you know, you always, you never, why don't you, with all these you messages that really tend to put that person down 
And so this, the way we dialogue about the problems can be very non-productive and it can start in a harsh way, which means it's going to end in a harsh way. Well, so. that makes sense. That totally makes sense to me. Cause I mean, I think of any time that I've been spoken to harshly upfront, it's like you automatically get your defenses up. You know, you don't mm -hmm. want to accept what, it doesn't matter what they're even talking about. I probably wasn't the wrong, but it's like, Oh, all of a sudden your guard gets up. So I, I completely see through that. For sure. And from the guard going up, that's our, that's the second. So we have this harsh startup or criticism and then it goes to defensiveness, which is the yeah. natural response. Then it usually the criticism ramps up into what we call contempt where you're really putting the other person down. And then that results in stonewalling, which is where the guys often end up where oh, I just don't want to talk about it. Yeah. I'm just going to get busy with the remote here or yeah. mad cleaning or whatever it is. And they just stonewall and the conversation stops mm -hmm. and the physiology is all ramped up and they can't get anywhere. And they're just in this gridlock situation and they may just quit talking about it and calm down, but the problem never goes away and they never make progress with the problem. It just, comes back again. It's like a broken record. It comes, you know, yeah. you, I mean, all of us have that conversation that we've had a million times with our spouse. It's like, are we saying this again? <laughs> <laughs> oh. And it's like a broken record. It just goes oh, in the, wow. the same yes. pattern again and again. Do you, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. can you relate? Yes. And it's funny because it's over stupid little things. Like my husband loves Android and I just prefer Apple because that's what I've always had. And it's like always, he always brings it up. And I'm just like, it's so funny that this is so important to you because I don't really care if you have an Android phone, but it really bothers him that I have an Apple yeah. phone, but he bought me the phone. That's the funny part of it. <laughs> so that's right. Like, it just cracks me up. And I know that that's one of those unresolvables that he's never going to change his mind and I'm never going to care enough to fight about it, but it's just a funny thing that we have our preferences you know and exactly and the argument is never really about the phone mm -mm. it's about something much deeper it's yeah you know? so that takes us to our next step actually so when we have a gridlocked problem and the phone's a really cute example of that you know it could be much stronger and deeper right, but the right. phone's a fun example of that um so the Gottman Institute, through the research, kind of came up with a whole new way of approaching gridlocked problems that was very, very different than traditional marriage therapy. What they were learning was that a lot of marriage therapy, they studied couples who went and who didn't go, and the couples who didn't go actually did better than the couples who went sometimes. Hmm. Well, quite often. What was happening in the therapy was that the the partners were encouraged to listen to each other as if they were a therapist. So the person would come in and have this big beef about the other person. And then the therapist who is trained to listen empathetically, and they can do it because there's no emotional involvement. So they would listen to that person, but then they're trying to get their spouse to listen in the same way. Problem oh, is that sounds like a disaster. <laughs> yeah. The problem is that the spouse has all this feeling coming back the other way. The therapist is a third party. Yeah. So the has their side that's just killing them and they're supposed to sit and listen to this, you know, attack on themselves as if it's not affecting them. And it just, you know, it just didn't, wasn't getting anywhere. What the Gottman Institute came up with was a kind of a different way of approaching that. And the, and we teach it in our workshops, which is so cool because it's like a preventative vitamin you know, 
for people that they can learn instead of, I mean, therapy is great and I'm a huge proponent of therapy, but I'm a bigger proponent of education. Yes. And of the right kind of therapy if you're going to go that route. Exactly. Exactly. So what they did, and this is the next step up on the house. So when you have these perpetual problems that you have gridlock about, what they are, what we teach people to do is to actually discover the hidden dream under that conflict. So in other words, let's take your phone conversation. Mm -hmm. This is a great example. This is something I would actually love to have people do in class because when they take a big heavy issue in class, it's like it's too much to do in class. Right, right. And you don't want to air your relationship in a, you know, for all anyway. (laughs) Well, in our workshops, they don't dare, they only are between the two of them. We never do it in public. They're always in a couple. Right, right. Regardless, you don't have enough time to deal with a big heavy issue. So the phone would be a great one. So what we teach them to do is to ask some specific questions of each other about the phone situation. So say that issue came up again and you guys are talking about the phone. So what we would do is pull out our list of questions, this little question list we have. He's going to love this if I pull out this <laughs> And I don't know. I mean, I could pull out my list here. I'm not going to give them all to you, but... Oh, here's my list. I happen to have it right here. Okay. Um, I'm going to give you this little list of questions and, and you would ask these questions to your spouse. And the, the cool thing about this is if you pull out your questions, you get much less emotionally involved and you can listen like a love map reporter and just write down your answers. And it gets I can't little, wait. Less, like my little you know, spiral bound notebook and my, yeah. <laughs> it's actually really effective. Okay. But case, the first thing you would do is ask your husband, so what do you believe about this issue, about this phone issue? Just tell me what you believe. And you're just going to write down his answers like you're writing a newspaper report for it. (laughs) Okay. What do you believe about it? Do you have some values or ethical ideas or beliefs that relate to to your position? And you're going to write them down. Then you're going to say, what are all the things you feel about this issue? So you're really going to let him tell you everything. Get it all out. Yeah. Yeah. And this has nothing to do with you. See the difference here? Like he's not, he's not going to talk about you. He's only talking about how he feels and what is the deep dream here. Okay. Um, What is this position on the phone? What does that mean to you? Tell me about it. Tell me the story of it. Does it relate in some way to some experience you've had or your childhood or you know, and you may really learn something unique about him here, mm-hmm. about his entrenched position on the phone. Um, then you'd go on to asking him, what do you want? What do you need in this situation? Or what's, what's your ideal dream here? And he may say that we're on the same kind of a plan or actually my ideal dream is, you know, something else. Anyway, um, there's this list of dreams that we use. And none of these things are bad for a relationship. But when you become a dream detector and you learn what it is that's so entrenched in your partner about this issue, it's so much easier to manage it. You're not going to solve it. That's not the goal. Mm -hmm. Your intention is to manage it. Most likely, his dream will be something like something like a sense of freedom or a spiritual journey or getting my priorities straight or exploring who I am or, 
you know, adventure or consistency or exploring a creative side of myself. There'll be something like that. They're not going to be something that's harmful to your relationship. They're just something he has a dream about. Yeah, he has a, he has a dream that I will love a Samsung Galaxy as much as he does. <laughs> it could be. You know, <laughs> love he, it. I love it. Yeah, it may even have something to do with that he's very open to your influence. And this yeah. is one place where he really wants to influence you. Who knows? Yeah. I yeah. don't know. That is but those so questions would kind of get you to an understanding about that. Then you can go to your compromise situation. And, and once you have this deeper understanding of his dream, your areas of flexibility might open way up. Mm -hmm. You might still be inflexible in some area that like, you know, this system really works better for me. But the, your areas of flexibility might really change and you might be able to be creative and explore some other options together once you have that understanding about his dreams. That's interesting. I love that. I love it. I love that you talk about it as being his dreams because I really do feel like it would be his dream that I would yeah. agree that his phone is as good as or better than mine. Uh -huh. I probably should just agree with that because I really don't have a preference. <laughs> <I just have laughs> <a> phone. <laughs> Other than you have to learn to use a whole different system, right? But right, right. Oh, I love it though. I'm going to ask him all these things. This is going to be really fun. <laughs> so, so then we get to the last level of the house so what we kind of learn about conflict is that some of it yes is solvable but a lot of it is supposed to be managed not solved mm -hmm. you just manage it by becoming a dream detector and really making more connection with your spouse over those conflicts instead of butting up against each other so the last part of the house is to create shared meaning together and we have four sections of that so just in a nutshell, those sections are your values, your roles, your goals, and your, um, let me think of the right word here. Oh, symbols. Okay, shared values and symbols. Okay, so now we're at the top of the house where we want to talk about these four pillars of connection. And this is when, you know, you've, you're getting fairly good at all that other stuff. And you can do these things without being really good at the other things, but they're the the idea is to create a shared meaning between the two of you. So if you've ever read, and most everyone in the world has read, got, um, Stephen Covey's Seven Principles for Making, no, for, what is it? Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Thank you. Is that the one? Yes, Seven yes. Habits of Highly Effective People. One of the first thing he talks about in his book is to write your own obituary. Do you remember that part? I don't. I think I read the book so yeah. long ago. So this is a good refresher. Okay. So he, he challenges everyone to do the exercise of writing your obituary. And because he talks about beginning with the end in mind, right? Yes. Yes. So that you want, you want to take daily steps based on where you want to end up down the road. You want to face the rocket in the right trajectory. Yeah. So that the little things you do every day point to where you want it to go. Yeah. So this is kind of along those lines. Um, and this isn't the Gottman thing, but when we start this exercise in class, I usually have couples think about their obituary, not their individual obituary, but what are the grandchildren of Georgia and Mark going to think about when they think about Georgia and Mark, or, mm -hmm. you know, Paka and Gigi in our case. Mm -hmm. What are they going to say? What are they going to remember? What are they going to think of as our values and what we stood for? So I challenge you to write an obituary of you as a couple, okay. of what the memories will be about you. 
what, what you stood for. And out of that are what we come up with are these four pillars. So there's rituals of connection, meaning what do you, what do you make special in your life about when you greet each other, when you part on your birthday, holidays, um, you know, rituals around recreation or communication or even sex or just everyday living. What are the rituals? What are the patterns that you create that create meaning in your relationship? Okay. So that's one pillar. The second pillar is your roles. Now this was a really unique thing for me to think about, but extremely powerful, especially in my role as a stepmother, because when you marry at a young age and you, you start life and you're still in your twenties usually, and you're, you, you're still kind of developing who you are. Your brain's oh, not even yeah. developing, right? Yeah. And no, I feel like we grew together. up together as babies. Yeah. 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 But what this, when this really stuck out, stuck out to me was when I was married for a second time at the age of 40, mm -hmm. how this really became a bigger deal because by then you're quite entrenched in your roles yeah. and your, your way of doing life could be very different than the person you're marrying, right? So this is just an example. My husband's mother, he, he was the baby of his family and really kind of an only child because there was a six-year difference. Mm -hmm. He grew up with this amazing mother who ironed his jeans and made his lunch until he left the house to get married. I mean, she was mother number one and only had this one child really to dote on. And yeah. was, it was just amazing. And motherhood was her gig and she just did it full bore. Where I was number eight of 11 children. Yes. And <laughs> I was making my own lunch and doing my own laundry by the age of 12. And you know, it was a totally different situation. Not that one mothering experience was better. They were just very different. So different. Yeah. Yeah. So then these people get married, these two people get married and the role of wife or mother in one scenario is totally different yeah. than that of the other. My mother was off writing music and doing all these other things. She wasn't home ironing my jeans ever, you know, and his mother <laughs> lived for that which they were both good, but they're yeah. just different. Yeah. So talking about, you know, what does it mean to you, the role of mother and the role of wife and the role of sister and the role of husband and the role of father, what does that mean? Really getting clear on that and understanding each other's experience is super fun to do and super powerful for getting an understanding so that you don't feel disappointed in your spouse all the time. Yeah. You get more of an idea of where they're coming from and where you're coming from and kind of how you want to build your own life. Well, and I way. bet it's a little surprising sometimes of the thoughts that they do have around things and that how different it can be when you think mm -hmm. that you are on the same page, especially if you've been married for a long time. Yeah. But if you've had these different outlooks. And there that could have been an underlying, yeah, this yeah. underlying feeling of they're not measuring up or they're not doing it how my, my mom did it. And you may never discuss it, but when you finally do, you can really come to a much better understanding yeah. about where you both come from. That is, that's really interesting. I, I always think yeah. it's interesting just seeing my and my husband's relationships compared to my sisters and their husbands, because we got engaged when I was 19. I was super young and mm -hmm. they both got married close to their, if not 30, right at the very end of their twenties. So they had a very different way of coming in to their relationships than I did. You know, we grew up, as kids, you know, basically, 
where yeah. they both had been established, lived on their own. And it's been very interesting to just see how we operate so differently as couples. I mean, and the personalities are also very different too, but sure. you know, it sure. is definitely a different thing when you have been an adult for a while, I think. Right. When you come into a relationship. Yeah, for sure. For good so or bad. Both. <laughs> yeah. The third pillar of the top of that house is shared goals. And this is where I think it gets really exciting. And of course, when you're in the throes of raising a family, you don't get a ton of time to work on couple goals other than relationship goals, maybe, or, or small things, things you want to do for your family. It's harder right. to do, you know, a couple things sometimes, but the time will come sooner than you think that those children will be gone. And you don't want to get to a point of the children leaving. You're like, who are you? Right. Which will happen anyway. Trust me. Yeah. But you want to have things that you look forward to as a team that don't involve your children and things that are going to bring you fulfillment and joy as a couple that are separate from raising a family. So for instance, Mark and I have always wanted to do some kind of humanitarian work. We really didn't know what it would look like mm -hmm. or, you know, but we thought it would be really cool to do humanitarian work. And so we've always just kind of kept our ear to the ground and, kind of looked out for what's available. And when our children have finally left the nest and um, he had an opportunity come up as a physical therapist to do some wheelchair training and in other countries. And he started going out and doing that. And, you know, he would leave home and do it. And I was like, okay, bye, you know, have fun. <laughs> but I wasn't really involved. And yet as we've hung on to that and it's evolved, now we've been asked as a couple to go and head up this huge humanitarian project in Iraq, for instance. And we go there twice a year and we head up this huge humanitarian wheelchair initiative. And we do this as a couple, we're a team on this. Wow. And it's like our dream is coming true just because we had it in mind a long time ago and kept looking for opportunities and kind of keeping that in mind, even though we couldn't do it at the time, but knowing we were headed that way, it's just been the coolest thing for our relationship to have this shared goal that's now coming true that, that now that we have time to do it. Wow. So that it doesn't have to be big like that. And I'm not talking, that's just an example. You know, these can be very small goals. They can be goals of service together that you have or goals to achieve a certain level of fitness. I have a friend who does Ironmans with her husband and they're in their sixties. Wow. But they do it together. It's a shared goal that they have and it brings them great meaning in their relationship. Oh, I think that's so neat. I think that we need to spend another hour talking about your wheelchair experiences. That's <laughs> so neat. Not right now, but oh, it's that's so neat. Okay, so I'm just going to end with the last pillar, and that's shared values and symbols. So I, this one's really interesting, and these can be religious or they can be physical, mm -hmm. and they can be small or large, but they can be a spiritual vision that you share together somehow, or even if you have different ones, how you blend them and bring them together. They can be symbols in your home or religious symbols or family history kind of symbols that mean a lot to your family and bring meaning to your family. So that's just the last pillar is focusing on some of those things, talking about them and ways you want to make them more prominent in your, in your life together as a couple. So that's kind of the whole house in a nutshell and how we work through those things and educate people about those things to make their relationships great. 
So I can see how you have conferences over many days to go through all of this information because yeah. it's just, I think every little topic we could talk for hours about. It's for sure. amazing. What an amazing, amazing philosophy and science and, oh, I'm just so inspired. I'm going to be such a better wife now. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that. I really I do believe that. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's so neat. Is for there... me, I have to take one little step and just practice it for a month and then start another step and just keep rehearsing them. Oh, but yeah. I think, Hillary, you probably could just do it from this one hour. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Oh, maybe just because I have the most compliant husband in the world. That's the only way <laughs> I can do it because he's so nice to me, but this has been so amazing. I love these principles and I love that I can put them in with my marriage and with my kids because I, mm -hmm. <laughs> there was another podcast I listened to with you on when you talked about um, how conflict was the time when you can make the biggest difference in your relationship or something like that. Is that what it was? Yeah, that negative yeah. emotions are your best opportunity for connection. Yes. That has been mm -hmm. running. I think I listened to it about a week ago and it's been running through my mind constantly and I love that because there's so many times in marriage or with any family member it doesn't even have to be your children it could be sisters or parents or whoever it is there's right. always going to be that negative conflict somewhere <laughs> usually a lot right yeah and recognizing that the research backs it up that if you learn how to manage that conflict in a, an empathetic and a, in a, an effective way that that's actually going to bring you closer and not further apart is profound. It is so powerful. No, it's been it so great. Yeah. So oh. if that was in my head now, just think of all these other things that I'm just going to be able to have these wonderful things running through my mind. So <laughs> I just appreciate you so much and how you just lift up everybody around you. And I just want all our listeners to know where we can find you. So tell us your handle and where we can find you on your website and on your oh, sure. social media and everything. All right. Well, it's pretty simple. I am know how mom tips on Instagram. I am cutting back a little bit on my social media and trying to do more with my email and you can get on my email list at my website, which is knowhowmom.com. And, um, I, I send a, le a little tip out every week on my email. So that's a fun place to be. And then I do workshops and classes in Utah, mostly on the Wasatch front at Bryce Canyon. We're going to start some more down in Southern Utah, we hope. And, um, and I do mostly the Gottman marriage workshop and emotion coaching, but I also have classes and private coaching available for co-parenting, uh, families who are divorcing, step families, which is another whole complication yeah. to family life. And so all those things are up and running and um, love to come and speak to your group or meet with, I'm doing a home class tonight where a group of individuals got a group together. And so all those things are available. So wonderful. Oh, thank you, Georgia, so much for, with all this that you're doing, spending a few minutes to come and well, and it ended up being more than a few minutes. Thank you for spending. <laughs> I love every minute that we can get. I just learned so much and appreciate you and everything about you so much. So thank you. Thank you. I'm more than happy to do it because ultimately what I want is for people to find joy in their lives and not to be lonely. Yeah. There's too much loneliness in the world and there's too much possibility of happiness left untouched. And I just want to see that change. 
I love it. Well, we will promote that from the rooftops. That's, that's okay. wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you. So are you guys just super motivated to go invigorate those relationships? I love everything Georgia has to say. She's so fantastic. And she's been so gracious. While we were recording this, my one-year-old came in twice. My babysitters were definitely slacking on their duties or distracted or something. And he kept coming in and she was so sweet, even though she has so much going on to be so patient with me. So she really is the real deal. Super gracious, super wonderful, so knowledgeable. And it really is just such a blessing for us to have her on this podcast. And I hope you guys have all felt that too. So if you haven't already and you're listening to this through a podcast app, make sure you head over and rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. If you want more detailed show notes, head over to our website, helpingofhappiness.com. And as, as along with the show notes, we have our podcast archives, travel tips, homemaking hacks, Lots of family recipes, just tons of good stuff over there. We're on Pinterest and Instagram and Facebook and just all over social media. So have a really great day. Thanks for listening in.